Session eight of the Trembling of a Leaf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lilith Brander. The Trembling of a Leaf by W. Somerset Maugham. Section eight. The Pool. Part two. You don't know how much I love you, he said. I'd give anything in the world to be able to tell you what I've got in my heart. He sought her lips. The summer came. The highland valley was green and fragrant, and the hills were gay with the heather. One sunny day followed another in that sheltered spot, and the shade of the birch trees was grateful after the glare of the high road. Ethel spoke no more of Samoa, and Lawson grew less nervous. He thought that she was resigned to her surroundings, and he felt that his love for her was so passionate that it could leave no room in her heart for any longing. One day the local doctor stopped him in the street. I say, Lawson, your missus ought to be careful how she bathes in our highland streams. It's not like the Pacific, you know. Lawson was surprised. It had not the presence of mind to conceal the fact. I didn't know she was bathing. The doctor laughed. A good many people have seen her. It makes them talk a bit, you know, because it seems a rum place to choose to pull up above the bridge and bathing isn't allowed there. But there's no harm in that. I don't know how she can stand the water. Lawson knew the pool the doctor spoke of, and suddenly it occurred to him that, in a way, it was just like that pool in Upperloo where Ethel had been in the habit of bathing every evening. A clear highland stream ran down a sinuous course, rocky, splashing gaily, and then formed a deep, smooth pool, with a little sandy beach. Trees overshadowed it thickly, not coconut trees but beeches, and the sun played fitfully through the leaves on the sparkling water. It gave him a shock. With his imagination he saw Ethel go there every day and undress on the bank and slip into the water, cold colder than that of the pool she loved at home and for a moment regained the feeling of the past he saw her once more as the strange wild spirit of the stream and it seemed to him fantastically that the running water caught her that afternoon he went along to the river he made his way cautiously among the trees and the grassy path deadened the sound of his steps presently he came to a spot from which he could see the pool Ethel was sitting on the bank, looking down at the water. She sat quite still. It seemed as though the water drew her irresistibly. He wondered what strange thoughts wandered through her head. At last she got up. For a minute or two she was hidden from his gaze. Then he saw her again, wearing a mother hubbard, and with her little bare feet she stepped delicately over the mossy bank. She came to the water's edge and softly, without a splash, let herself down. She swam about quietly, and there was something not quite of a human being in the way she swam. He did not know why it affected him so queerly. He waited till she clambered out. She stood for a moment with the wet folds of her dress clinging to her body, so that its shape was outlined, and then, passing her hand slowly over her breasts, gave a little sigh of delight. Then she disappeared. Lawson turned away and walked back to the village. He had a bitter pain in his heart, for he knew that she was still a stranger to him. 
and his hungry love was destined ever to remain unsatisfied. He did not make any mention of what he had seen. He ignored the incident completely, but he looked at her curiously, trying to divine what was in her mind. He redoubled the tenderness with which he used her. He sought to make her forget the deep longing of her soul by the passion of his love. Then one day, when he came home, he was astonished to find her not in the house. "'Where's Mrs. Lawson?' he asked the maid. "'She went into Aberdeen, sir, with a baby.' The maid answered, a little surprised at the question. She said she would not be back till the last train. Oh, all right. He was vexed that Ethel had said nothing to him about the excursion. But he was not disturbed, since of late she had been in now and again to Aberdeen, and he was glad that she should look at the shops and perhaps visit a cinema. He went to meet the last train, but when she did not come, he grew suddenly frightened. He went up to the bedroom and saw at once that her toilet things were no longer in their place. He opened the wardrobe and the drawers. They were half empty. She had bolted. He was seized with a passion of anger. It was too late that night to telephone to Arbertin to make inquiries, but he knew already all that his inquiries might have taught him. With fiendish cunning she had chosen a time when they were making up their periodical accounts at the bank and there was no chance that he could follow her. He was imprisoned by his work. He took up a paper and saw that there was a boat sailing for Australia next morning. She must be now well on the way to London. He could not prevent the sobs that were wrung painfully from him. I've done everything in the world for her, he cried. And she had the heart to treat me like this. How cruel, how monstrously cruel. After two days of misery, he received a letter from her. It was written in her schoolgirl hand. She had always written with difficulty. Dear Bertie, I couldn't stand it any more. I'm going back home. Goodbye. Ethel. She did not say a single word of regret. She did not even ask him to come too. Lawson was prostrated. He found out where the ship made its first stop, and though he knew very well she would not come, sent a cable beseeching her to return. He waited with pitiful anxiety. He wanted her to send him just one word of love. She did not even answer. He passed through one violent phase after another. At one moment he told himself that he was well rid of her, and at next that he would force her to return by withholding money. He was lonely and wretched. He wanted his boy, and he wanted her. He knew that, whatever he pretended to himself, there was only one thing to do, and that was to follow her. He could never live without her now. All his plans for the future were like a house of cards, and he scattered them with angry impatience. He did not care whether he threw away his chances for the future, but nothing in the world mattered but that he should get Ethel back again. As soon as he could, he went into Arbertin and told the manager of his bank that he meant to leave at once. The manager remonstrated. The short notice was inconvenient. Lawson would not listen to reason. He was determined to be free before the next boat sailed, and it was not until he was on board of her, having sold everything he possessed, that in some measure he regained his calm. Till then, to those who had come in contact with him, he seemed hardly sane. 
His last action in England was to cable to Ethel at Apia that he was joining her. He sent another cable from Sydney, and when at last, with the dawn, his boat crossed the bar at Apia, and he saw once more the white houses straggling along the bay, he felt an immense relief. The doctor came on board and the agent. They were both old acquaintances, and he felt kindly towards their familiar faces. He had a drink or two with them for old times' sake, and also because he was desperately nervous. He was not sure if Ethel would be glad to see him. When he got into the launch and approached the wharf, he scanned anxiously the little crowd that waited. She was not there, and his heart sank. But then he saw Rafald, and his old blue clothes, and his heart warmed towards him. Where's Ethel? he said as he jumped on shore. She's down at the bungalow. She's living with us. Nelson was dismayed, but he put on a jovial air. Well, have you got room for me? I dare say it'll take a week or two to fix ourselves up. Oh, yes, I guess we can make room for you. After passing through the custom house, they went to the hotel, and there Lawson was greeted by several of his old friends. There were a good many rounds of drinks before it seemed possible to get away, and when they did go out at last to Rivald's house, they were both rather gay. He clasped Ethel in his arms. He had forgotten all his bitter thoughts in the joy of beholding her once more. His mother-in-law was pleased to see him, and so was the old, brankled Beldam, her mother. Natives and half-caste came in, and they all sat round, beaming on him. Bravold had a bottle of whisky, and every one who came was given a nip. Lawson sat with his little dark-skinned boy on his knees. They had taken his English clothes off him, and he was stark with Ethel by his side in the Mother Hubbard. He felt like a returning prodigal. In the afternoon he went down to the hotel again, and when he got back it was more than gay. He was drunk. Ethel and her mother knew that white men got drunk now and then, was what you expected of them, and they laughed good-naturedly as they helped him to bed. But in a day or two he set about looking for a job. He knew that he could not hope for such a position as that which he had thrown away to go to England, but with his training he could not fail to be useful to one of the trading firms, and perhaps in the end he would not lose by the change. After all, you can't make money in a bank, he said trace the thing. He had hopes that he would soon make himself so indispensable that he would get someone to take him into partnership, and there was no reason why, in a few years, he should not be a rich man. As soon as I'm fixed up, we'll find ourselves a shack, he told Ethel. We can't go on living here. Brevald's bungalow was so small that they were all piled on one another, and there was no chance of ever being alone. There was neither peace nor privacy. Well, there's no hurry. We shall be all right here till we find just what we want. It took him a week to get settled, and then he entered the firm of a man called Bain. But when he talked to Ethel about moving, she said she wanted to stay where she was till her baby was born, for she was expecting another child. Lawson tried to argue with her. If you don't like it, she said, go and live at the hotel. He grew suddenly pale. Ethel, how can you suggest that? She shrugged her shoulders. What's the good of having a house of her own when we can live here? He yielded. 
when lawson after his work went back to the bungalow he found it crowded with natives they lay about smoking sleeping drinking kava and they talked incessantly the place was grubby and untidy his child crawled about playing with native children and it had nothing spoken but samoan he fell into the habit of dropping into the hotel on his way home to have a few cocktails but he could only face the evening and the crowd of friendly natives when he was fortified with liquor and all the time though he loved her more passionately than ever he felt that ethel was slipping away from him when the baby was born he suggested that they should get into a house of their own but ethel refused her stay in Scotland seemed to have thrown her back on her own people, now that she was once more among them, with a passionless zest, and she turned to her native ways with abandon. Lawson began to drink more. Every Saturday night he went to the English club and got blind drunk. He had the peculiarity that as he grew drunk, he grew quarrelsome, and once he had a violent dispute with Bing, his employer, Bing dismissed him and he had to look out for another job. He was idle for two or three weeks, and during these, sooner than sit in the bungalow, he lunched about in the hotel, or at the English club, and drank. It was more out of pity than anything else that Miller, a German-American, took him into his office, but he was a businessman, and so Lawson's financial skill made him valuable. The circumstances were such that he could hardly refuse a smaller salary than he had had before, and Miller did not hesitate to offer it to him. Ethel and Brevald blamed him for taking it, since Peterson, the half-caste, offered him more. But he resented bitterly the thought of being under the orders of a half-caste. When Ethel nagged him, he burst out furiously. I'll see myself dead before I work for a nigger. You may have to, she said and in six months he found himself forced to this final humiliation. The passion for liquor had been gaining on him. He was often heavy with drink, and he did his work badly. Miller warned him once or twice, and Lawson was not the man to accept remonstrance easily. One day, in the midst of an altercation, he put on his hat and walked out. But by now his reputation was well known, and he could find no one to engage him. For a while, he idled, and then he had an attack of delirium tremens. When he recovered, shameful and weak, he could no longer resist the constant pressure, and he went to Pedersen and asked him for a job. Pedersen was glad to have a white man in his store, and Lawson's skill at figures made him useful. From that time, his degeneration was rapid. The white people gave him the cold shoulder, they were only prevented from cutting him completely by disdainful pity and by a sudden dread of his angry violence when he was drunk. He became extremely susceptible and was always on the lookout for a front. He lived entirely among the natives and half-castes, but he had no longer the prestige of the white man. They felt his loathing for them and they resented his attitude of superiority. He was one of themselves now and they did not see why he should put on airs. Brevald, who had been ingratiating obsequies, now treated him with contempt. Ethel had made a bad bargain. There were disgraceful sins, and once or twice the two men came to blows. When there was a quarrel, Ethel took the part of her family. 
they found he was better drunk than sober for when he was drunk he would lie on the bed or on the floor sleeping heavily then he became aware that something was being hidden from him when he got back to the bungalow for the wretched half-native supper which was his evening meal often ethel was not in if he asked where she was the brevard told him she had gone to spend the evening with one or other of her friends once he followed her to the house brevard had mentioned and found she was not there on her return he asked her where she had been and she told him her father had made a mistake she had been to so-and-so's but he knew that she was lying she was in her best clothes her eyes were shining and she looked lovely don't try any monkey tricks on me my girl he said or i'll break every bone in your body you drunken beast she said scornfully he fancied that mrs brevald and the old grandmother looked at him maliciously and he ascribed brevald's good humour with him some unusual those days to his satisfaction having something up his sleeve against his son-in-law and then his suspicions aroused he imagined that the white men gave him curious glances when he came into the lounge or the hotel the sudden silence which fell upon the company convinced him that he had been the subject of the conversation something was going on and every one knew it but himself he was seized with furious jealousy he believed that ethel was carrying on with one of the white men and he looked at one after the other with scrutinizing eyes but there was nothing to give him even a hint he was helpless because he could find no one on whom definitely to fix his suspicions he went about like a raving maniac looking for someone on whom to vent his wrath chance caused him in the end to hit upon the man who of all others least deserved to suffer from his violence one afternoon when he was sitting in the hotel by himself moodily chaplin came in and sat down beside him perhaps chaplin was the only man on the island who had any sympathy for him they ordered drinks and chatted a few minutes about the races that were shortly to be run then chaplin said i guess we shall all have to fork out money for new dresses lawson sniggered since mrs chaplin held the purse strings if she wanted a new frock for the occasion she would certainly not ask her husband for the money how's your missus asked chaplin desiring to be friendly what the hell's that got to do with you said lawson knitting his dark brows i was only asking a civil question well keep your civil questions to yourself chaplin was not a patient man his long residence in the tropics the whisky bottle and his domestic affairs had given him a temper hardly more under control than lawson's look here my boy when you're in my hotel you behave like a gentleman or you find yourself in the street before you can say knife lawson's lowering face grew dark and red let me just tell you once for all and you can pass it on to the others he said panting with rage any of you fellows come messing round with my wife he'd better look out who do you think wants to mess around with your wife i'm not such a fool as you think i can see a stone wall in front of me as well as most men and i warn you strict that's all i'm not going to put up with any hanky-panky not on your life look here you'd better clear out of here and come back when you're sober i shall clear out when i choose and not a minute before said lawson it was an unfortunate 
exposed, for chaplain in the course of his experiences, a hotel keeper had acquired a peculiar skill in dealing with gentlemen whose room he preferred to their company. And the words were hardly out of Lawson's mouth before he found himself caught by the collar and arm and hustled not without force into the street. He stumbled down the steps into the blinding glare of the sun. It was in consequence of this that he had his first violin scene with Ethel. Smarting with humiliation and unwilling to go back to the hotel, he went home that afternoon earlier than usual. He found Ethel dressing to go out. As a rouge lay about in the mother hubbard, barefoot with a flower in her dark hair. But now, in white silk stockings and high-heeled shoes, she was doing up a pink muslin dress, which was the newest she had. You're making yourself very smart, he said. Where are you going? I'm going to the Crossleys. I'll come with you. Why? She asked coolly. I don't want you to gad about by yourself all the time. You're not asked. I don't care damn about that. You're not going without me. You'd better lie down till I'm ready. She thought he was drunk, and if he once settled himself on the bed, would quickly drop off to sleep. He sat down on a chair and began to smoke a cigarette. She watched him with increasing irritation. When she was ready, he got up. It happened by an unusual chance that there was no one in the bungalow. Raffald was working on the plantation, and his wife had gone to Apia. Ethel faced him. I'm not going with you. You're drunk. That's a lie. You're not going without me. She shrugged her shoulders and tried to pass him, but he caught her by the arm and held her. Let me go, you devil, she said, breaking into Samoan. Why do you want to go without me? Haven't I told you I'm not going to put up with any monkey tricks? She clenched her fist and hit him in the face. He lost all control of himself, all his love, all his hatred, welled up in him and he was beside himself. I'll teach you, he shouted. I'll teach you. He seized a riding whip which happened to be under his hand and struck her with it. She screamed, and the scream maddened him so that he went on striking her again and again. Her shrieks rang through the bungalow, and he cursed her as he hit. Then he flung her on the bed. She lay there sobbing with pain and terror. He threw the whip away from him and rushed out of the room. Ethel heard him go, and she stopped crying. She looked round cautiously. Then she raised herself. She was sore, but she had not been badly hurt, and she looked at her dress to see if it was damaged. The native women are not unused to blows. What he had done did not outrage her. When she looked at herself in the glass and arranged her hair, her eyes were shining. There was a strange look in them. Perhaps then she was nearer loving him than she had ever been before. But Lawson, driven forth blindly, stumbled through the plantation and suddenly exhausted, weak as a child, flung himself on the ground at the foot of a tree. He was miserable and ashamed. He thought of Ethel, and in the yielding tenderness of his love all his bones seemed to grow soft within him. He thought of the past, of his hopes, and he was aghast at what he had done. He wanted her more than ever. He wanted to take her in his arms. He must go to her at once. He got up. 
He was so weak that he staggered as he walked. He went into the house and she was sitting in their cramped bedroom in front of her looking glass. Oh, Ethel, forgive me. I'm so awfully ashamed of myself. I didn't know what I was doing. He fell on his knees before her and timidly stroked the skirt of her dress. I can't bear to think of what I did. It's awful. I think I was mad. There's no one in the world I love as I love you. I should do anything to save you from pain and that hurts you. I can never forgive myself. But for God's sake, say you forgive me. He heard her shrugs still. It was unendurable. She looked at him silently. He tried to take her hands and the tears streamed from his eyes. In his humiliation, he hid his face in her lap and his frail body shook with sobs. An expression of utter contempt came over her face. She had the native woman's disdain of a man who abased himself before a woman, a weak creature, and for a moment she had been on the point of thinking there was something in him. He groveled at her feet like a cur. She gave him a little scornful kick. Get out, she said. I hate you. He tried to hold her, but she pushed him aside. She stood up. She began to take off her dress. She kicked off her shoes and slid the stockings off her feet. Then she slipped on her old mother Hubbard. Where are you going? What's that got to do with you? I'm going down to the pool. Let me come too, he said. He asked as though he were a child. Can't you even leave me that? He hid his face in his hands, crying miserably. While she, her eyes hard and cold, stepped past him and went out. From that time she entirely despised him, and though herded together in the small bungalow, Lawson and Ethel, with her two children, Brafald, his wife and her mother, and the vague relations and hangers-on who were always in and about, they had to leave cheek by jaw. Lawson, ceasing to be of any account, was hardly noticed. He left in the morning after breakfast and came back only to have supper. He gave up the struggle. When for want of money he could not go to the English club, he spent the evening playing hearts with Oberfeld and natives. Except when he was drunk, he was cowed and listless. Ethel treated him like a dog. She submitted at times to his fits of wild passion, and she was frightened by the gusts of hatred with which they were followed. But when afterwards he was cringing and lachrymose, she had such a contempt for him that she could have spat in his face. Sometimes he was violent, but now she was prepared for him, and when he hit her, she kicked and scratched and beat. They had horrible battles in which they had not always the best of it. Very soon it was known all over Arpia that they got on badly. There was little sympathy for Lawson, and at the hotel, the general surprise was that old Brifal did not kick him out of the place. Brifal's pretty ugly customer, said one of the men. I shouldn't be surprised if we put a bullet into Lawson's carcass one of these days. Ethel still went in the evenings to bathe in the silent pool. It seemed to have an attraction for her that was not quite human. Just the attraction you might imagine that a mermaid who had won a soul would have for the cool salt waves of the sea. And sometimes Lawson went also. I do not know what urged him to go, for Ethel was obviously irritated by his presence. Perhaps it was because in that spot he hoped to regain a clean rapture which had filled his heart when first he saw her. Perhaps only 
with the madness of those who love them that love them not from the feeling that his obstinacy could force love one day he strode down there with a feeling that was rare with him now he felt suddenly at peace with the world the evening was drawing in and the dusk seemed to cling to the leaves of the coconut trees like a little thin cloud a faint breeze stirred them noiselessly a crescent moon hung just over their tops he made his way to the bank he saw ethel in the water floating on her back her hair streamed out all round her and she was holding in her hand a large hibiscus he stopped a moment to admire her she was like ophelia hello ethel he cried joyfully she made a sudden movement and dropped the red flower it floated idly away she swam a stroke or two till she knew there was ground within her depth and then stood up go away she said go away he laughed don't be selfish there's plenty of room for both of us why can't you leave me alone i want to be by myself hang it all i want to bathe he answered good-humouredly go down to the bridge i don't want you here i'm sorry for that he said smiling still he was not in the least angry and he hardly noticed that she was in a passion he began to take off his coat go away he shrilled i won't have you here can't you even leave me this go away don't be silly darling she bent down and picked up a sharp stone and flung it quickly at him he had no time to duck it hit him on the temple with a cry he put his hand to his head and when he took it away it was wet with blood ethel stood still panting with rage he turned very pale and without a word taking up his coat went away ethel let herself fall back into the water and the stream carried her slowly down to the fort the stone had made a jagged wound and for some days lawson went about with a bandaged head he had invented a likely story to account for the accident when the fellows at the club asked him about it but he had no occasion to use it no one referred to the matter he saw them cast surreptitious glances at his head but not a word was said the silence could only mean that they knew how he came by his wound he was certain now that ethel had a lover and they all knew who it was there was not the smallest indication to guide him he never saw ethel with anyone no one showed a wish to be with her or treated him in a manner that seemed strange wild rage seized him and having no one to vent it on he drank more and more heavily a little while before i came to the island he had had another attack of delirium tremens i met ethel at the house of a man called castor who lived two or three miles from apia with a native wife we had been playing tennis with him and when we were tired he suggested a cup of tea we went into the house and in the untidy living room found ethel chatting with mrs castor hello ethel he said i didn't know you were here i could not help looking at her with curiosity i tried to see what there was in her to have excited in loss and such a devastating passion but who can explain these things it was true that she was lovely she reminded one of the red hibiscus the common flower of the hatch grow in samoa with its grace and its languor and its passion what surprised me most taking into consideration the story i knew even then a good deal of was her freshness and simplicity 
She was quiet and a little shy. There was nothing coarse or loud about her. She had not the exuberance common to the half-caste, and it was almost impossible to believe that she could be the virago, that the horrible sins between husband and wife, which were now common knowledge, indicated. In her pretty pink frock and high-heeled shoes, she looked quite European. You could hardly have guessed at that dark background of native life in which she felt herself so much more at home. I did not imagine that she was at all intelligent, and I should not have been surprised if a man, after living with her for some time, had found the passion which had drawn him to her sink into boredom. It suggested itself to me that in her elusiveness, like a thought that presents itself to consciousness and vanishes before it can be captured by words, lay her peculiar charm. But perhaps that was merely fancy. And if I had known nothing about her, I should have seen in her only a pretty little half-caste like another. She talked to me of the various things which they talk of to the stranger in Samoa, of the journey, and whether I had slipped down the water rock in Papicia, and if I meant to stay in a native village. She talked to me of Scotland, and perhaps I noticed in her tendency to enlarge on the sumptuousness of her establishment there. She asked me naively if I knew Mrs. This and Mrs. That, with whom she had been acquainted when she lived in the North. Sir Miller, the fat German-American, came in. He shook hands all round very cordially and sat down, asking his loud, cheerful voice for a whisky and soda. He was very fat and he sweated profusely. He took off his gold-rimmed spectacles and wiped them. You saw then, his little eyes, Benevolence behind large round glasses were shrewd and cunning. The party had been somewhat dull till he came, but he was a good storyteller and a jovial fellow. Soon he had the two women, Ethel and my friend's wife, laughing delightedly at his sallies. He had the reputation on the island of ladies' man, and you could see how this fat, gross fellow, old and ugly, had yet the possibility of fascination. His humour was on a level with the understanding of his company in affair of vitality and assurance, and his western accent gave a peculiar point to what he said. At last he turned to me. Well, if you want to get back for dinner, we'd better be getting. I'll take you along in my machine if you like. I thanked him and got up. He shook hands with the others, went out of the room, massive and strong in his walk, and climbed into his car. Pretty little thing, Lawson's wife, I said, as we drove along. Too bad the way he treats her, knocks her about to get my dander up when I hear of a man hitting a woman. We went on a little, then he said. He was a darned fool to marry her, I said so at a time. If he hadn't, he'd have had to weep hand over her. He's yellow, that's what he is, yellow. The year was drawing to its end, and the time approached when it was to leave Samoa. My boat was scheduled to sail for Sydney on the 4th of January. Christmas Day had been celebrated and the hotel with suitable ceremonies, but it was looked upon as no more than a rehearsal for New Year, and the men who were accustomed to forgather in the lounge determined on New Year's Eve to make a night of it. There was an uproarious dinner, after which the party sauntered down to the English club, a simple little frame house to play pool. There was a great deal of talking, laughing and betting, 
but some very poor play, except on the part of Miller, who had drunk as much as any of them, all far younger than he, but had kept unimpaired the keenness of his eye and the sureness of his hand. He pocketed the young man's money with humour and urbanity. After an hour of this, I grew tired and went out. I crossed the road and came on to the beach. Three coconut trees grew there, like three moon maidens waiting for their lovers to ride out of the sea, and I sat at the foot of one of them, watching the lagoon and the nightly assemblage of the stars. I do not know where Lawson had been during the evening, but between ten and eleven he came along to the club. He shambled down the dusty, empty road, feeling dull and bored, and when he reached the club before going into the billiard room, went into the bar to have a drink by himself. He had a shyness now about joining the company of white men, where there were a lot of them together and needed a stiff dose of whisky to give him confidence. He was standing with a glass in his hand when Miller came into him. He was in his shirt sleeves and still held his cue. He gave the bartender a glance. Get out, Jack, he said. The bartender, native in a white jacket and a red lava-lava, without a word slid out of the small room. Look here. I've been wanting to have a few words with you, Lawson, said the big American. Well, that's one of the few things you can have free, gratis, and for nothing on this damned island. Miller fixed his gold spectacles more firmly on his nose and held Lawson with his cold, determined eyes. See here, young fellow. I understand you've been knocking Mrs. Lawson about again. I'm not going to stand for that. If you don't stop it right now, I'll break every bone of your dirty little body. Then Lawson knew what he had been trying to find out so long. It was Miller. The appearance of a man, fat, bald-headed, with his round bare face and double chin and the gold spectacles, his age is benign sure to look, like that of a renegade priest, and the thought of Ethel so slim and virginal, filled him with a sudden horror. Whatever his faults, Lawson was no coward, and without a word he hit out violently at Miller. Miller quickly warded a blow with the hands that held the cue, and then with a great swing of his right arm brought his fist down on Lawson's ear. Lawson was four inches shorter than the American, and he was slightly built, frail and weakened not only by illness and the enervating tropics, but by drink. He fell like a log and lay half-dazed at the foot of the bar. Miller took off his spectacles and wiped them with his handkerchief. I guess you know what to expect now. You've had your warning and you'd better take it. He took up his cue and went back into the billiard room. There was so much noise there that no one knew what had happened. Lawson picked himself up. He put his hand to his ear, which was singing still. Then he slunk out of the club. I saw a man cross the road, a patch of white against the darkness of the night, but did not know who it was. He came down to the beach, passed me sitting at the foot of the tree, and looked down. I saw then that it was Lawson, but since he was doubtless drunk, did not speak. He went on, walked irresolutely two or three steps, and turned back. He came up to me, and bending down, stared in my face. I thought it was you, he said. He sat down and took out his pipe. It was hot and noisy in the club, I volunteered. Why are you sitting here? I was waiting about for the midnight mass at the cathedral. If you like, I'll come with you. Lawson was quite sober. 
we sat for a while smoking in silence. Now and then, in the lagoon, was the splash of some big fish, and a little way out towards the opening in the reef was the light of a schooner. You're sailing next week, aren't you? he said. Yes. It would be jolly to go home once more, but I could never stand it now, the cold, you know. It's odd to think that in England now they are shivering round the fire, I said. There was not even a breath of wind. The balminess of the night was like a spell. I wore nothing but a thin shirt and a suit of ducks. I enjoyed the exquisite languor of the night and stretched my limbs voluptuously. This isn't a sort of New Year's Eve that persuades one to make good resolutions for the future, I smiled. He made no answer, but I did not know what train of thought my casual remark had suggested in him, for presently he began to speak. He spoke in a low voice, without any expression, but his accents were educated, and it was a relief to hear him, after the twang and the vulgar intonations which for some time had wounded my ears, I've made an awful hash of things. That's obvious, isn't it? I'm right down at the bottom of the peat, and there's no getting out for me. Black as the peat from pole to pole. I felt him smile as he made a quotation, and the strange thing is that I don't see how I went wrong. I held my breath, for to me there is nothing more awe-inspiring than when a man discovers to you the nakedness of his soul. Then you see that no one is so trivial or debased, but that in him is a spark of something to excite compassion. It would have been so rotten if I could see that it was all my own fault. It's true, I drink, but I shouldn't have taken to it if things had gone differently. I wasn't really fond of liquor. I suppose I ought not to have married Ethel. If I'd kept her, it would be all right. But I did love her so. His voice faltered. She's not a bad lot, you know, not really. It's just rotten luck. We might have been as happy as lords. When she bolted, I suppose I ought to have let her go. But I couldn't do that. I was dead stuck on her then, and there was the kid. Are you fond of the kid? I asked. I was. There are two, you know. But they don't mean so much to me now. You'd take them for natives anywhere. I have to talk to them in Samoan. Is it too late for you to start fresh? Couldn't you make a dash for it and leave the place? I haven't the strength. I'm done for. Are you still in love with your wife? Not now, not now. He repeated the two words with a kind of horror in his voice. I haven't even got that now. I'm down and out. The bells of the cathedral was ringing. If you really want to come to the midnight mass, we'd better go along, I said. Come on. We got up and walked along the road. The cathedral, all white, stood facing the sea not without impressiveness. And beside it, the Protestant chapels had the look of meeting houses. In the road were two or three cars and a great number of traps, and traps were put up against the walls at the side. People had come from all parts of the island for the surface. And through the great open doors, we saw that the place was crowded. The high altar was all ablaze with light. There were a few whites and a good many half-castes. But the great majority were natives. All the men wore trousers. For the church has decided that the lava-lava is indecent. We found chairs at the back, 
near the open door and sat down presently following lawson's eyes i saw ethel come in with a party of half-castes they were all very much dressed up the men in high stiff collars and shiny boots the women in large gay hats ethel nodded and smiled to her friends as she passed up the aisle the service began when it was over lawson and i stood on one side for a while to watch the crowd stream out then he held out his hand good night he said i hope you'll have a pleasant journey home oh but i shall see you before i go he sniggered the question is if you'll see me drunk or sober he turned and left me i had a recollection of those very large black eyes shining wildly under the shaggy brows i paused irresolutely i did not feel sleepy and i thought i would at all events go along to the club for an hour before turning in when i got there i found the billiard-room empty but half a dozen men were sitting round a table in the lounge playing poker miller looked up as i came in sit down and take a hand he said all right i bought some chips and began to play of course it is the most fascinating game in the world and my hour lengthened out to two and then to three the native bartender cheery and wide awake notwithstanding the time was at our elbow to supply us with drinks and from somewhere or other he produced a ham and a loaf of bread we played on most of the party had drunk more than was good for them and the play was high and reckless i played modestly neither wishing to win nor anxious to lose but i watched miller with a fascinated interest he drank glass for glass with the rest of the company but remained cool and level-headed his pile of chips increased in size and he had a neat little paper in front of him on which he had marked various sums lent to the players in distress he beamed amiably at the young men whose money he was taking he kept up interminably his stream of jest and anecdote but he never missed a draw he never let an expression of the face pass him at last dawn crept into the windows gently with a sort of deprecating shyness as though it had no business there and then it was day well said miller i reckon we've seen the old year out in style now let's have a round of jackpots and me for my mosquito net i'm fifty remember i can't keep these late hours the morning was beautiful and fresh when we stood on the veranda and the lagoon was like a sheet of multicolored glass someone suggested a dip before going to bed but none cared to bathe in the lagoon sticky and treacherous to the feet miller had his car at the door and he offered to take us down to the pool we jumped in and drove along the deserted road when we reached the pool it seemed as though the day had hardly risen there yet under the trees the water was all in shadow and the night had the effects of lurking still we were in great spirits we had no towels or any costume and in my prudence i wondered how we were going to dry ourselves none of us had much on and it did not take us long to snatch off our clothes nelson the little spur cargo was stripped first i'm going down to the bottom he said he dived and in a moment another man dived too but shallow and was out of the water before him then nelson came up and scrambled to the side i say get me out he said what's up something was evidently the matter his face was terrified two fellows gave him their hands and he slithered up 
I say there's a man down there. Don't be a fool, you drunk. Well, if there isn't, I'm in for D.T.'s, but I tell you, there's a man down there just scared me out of my wits. Miller looked at him for a moment. The little man was all white. He was actually trembling. Come on, Custer, said Miller to the big Australian. We'd better go down and see. He was standing up, said Nelson. All dressed. I saw him. He tried to catch hold of me. Hold your row, said Miller. Are you ready? They dived in. We waited on the bank, silent. It really seemed as though they were underwater longer than any men could breathe. Then Custer came up, and immediately after him, red in the face as though he were going to have a feet, Miller, they were pulling something behind them. Another man jumped in to help them, and the three together dragged their burden to the side. They shoved it up. Then we saw that it was Lawson, with a great stone tied up in his coat and bound to his feet. He was set on making a good job of it, said Miller, as he wiped the water from his short-sighted eyes. End of section 8